Ever since my early days in seminary, many people were telling me that I needed to read the book Diary of a Country Priest. Well, I finally got around to it, and I'm about a third of the way through. It's about a young priest in France in the 1920s or 30s. He is sent to become a curé or pastor of a parish in a small town near the Belgian border. The town's people that he uh, shepherds are, are depicted as not particularly devout, and the young priest struggles to connect with them. His difficulties stem in part from his own inexperience and youthful naivete, along with his ongoing health problems. There's a scene where he's getting advice from a monsignor from the neighboring town. The older priest tells him that the hardest sin to confront in his congregation will be their financial greed, because most regard it as a virtue rather than a vice. He says to him, your people may be more or less amenable to our teachings as far as, for instance, the errors of the flesh are concerned. In their worldly prudence, they can see where such disorders lead. But what they call business appears to these industrious folks as their special preserve, where hard work excuses everything, since to them work is a kind of religion." Jesus, speaking 2,000 years ago, recognized this same tendency. The man who was eager to inherit eternal life was already obeying the Ten Commandments, and Jesus loved him for that. But the man wasn't prepared to accept the demands of the New Covenant if it meant giving up his wealth. If we look at the moral demands of the Old Covenant, primarily contained in the Ten Commandments, we see that they are, by and large, framed in the negative. Don't do this, or don't do that. The moral law, as conceived in the Old Testament, was primarily about avoiding intrinsic evil. In other words, preventing actions like murder, rape, or adultery that are unqualifiedly bad. But even in the Old Testament, the moral commandments were not ends in themselves. They were designed to point the Israelites to holiness. That is why Jesus, even when he appeared to teach something different from the Old Testament, took pains to say that he was not abolishing the law. He said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus is telling us that his covenant is not a matter of rejecting the old law, but rather of seeing the old law fulfilled in spirit and truth by the new law, which comes firstly from recognizing Christ as the Son of God. That, incidentally, is why Jesus responds to the young man who calls him good teacher by rebuking him. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. That might seem strange because, of course, Jesus is God, and thus he can be called good. But Jesus realizes that the young man does not recognize that yet. The man is using the term good as though Jesus were merely a good teacher or a good rabbi. He's judging him by ordinary human standards. He's not recognizing Jesus' divinity. So Jesus points this man to the fulfillment of the law, not virtue as merely the absence of vice, but as the possession of a kind of supernatural virtue that follows God so closely that one is willing to detach oneself from worldly possessions. As the old priest said in Diary of a Country Priest, understanding that is extraordinarily difficult. 
for a couple of reasons. First, because usually a greedy and materialistic person isn't committing any one discrete sin. People are called upon to engage in commerce and to earn a profit. Business, as John Paul II reminded us in Centissimus Annus, is a legitimate Christian vocation. Yet it's very easy, very, very easy, for the pursuit of a legitimate and fair profit to turn in to the quest for sordid wealth. It becomes very easy for a person in business or a profession to start with the goal of wanting to provide a decent material support for themselves and their family, but too easily the accumulation of wealth becomes an end in itself, simply running up the score. A person doesn't necessarily commit great sins in pursuing great wealth, though of course some do, but rather what they miss is the way that they are forming their character. The pursuit of wealth can make us acquisitive and greedy and egotistical and manipulative. Some start to lose their compassion for those who are not as successful. Many begin to see their wealth as simply their birthright, their due reward for all their hard work and risk-taking, rather than as a gift from God and one that is meant to be shared generously. And once someone has wealth, as this young man did who approached Jesus, it becomes very hard to part with it. Because let's face it, in this world, money gives someone respect and power, the ability to control things. That's why the devil's final temptation to Christ was for Christ to bow down and worship him. And for that, Satan would give him control over all of the kingdoms of the earth. The temptation towards power is very alluring. And sometimes it's alluring precisely because we think of ourselves as virtuous people. After all, who better to have that wealth and power than me? That's why Jesus would say how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Not because wealth is bad per se, but because of the common temptations that accompany the pursuit and maintenance of wealth. Further, unlike many other sins, such as gluttony or promiscuity, that are at least somewhat condemned by society, often the underlying pursuit of riches is applauded and glamorized. Society views it as an expression of drive and intelligence and persistence. People flatter the wealthy, not the poor. Jesus' disciples heard this exchange, and they heard Jesus say how difficult it would be for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, and they were in disbelief because the Judaism of the Old Testament that the disciples had been raised in was very much here and now. Charity was encouraged by the old law, yes, but health and wealth were seen as signs of God's blessing. Poverty and sickness were a curse because there was no eternal life. God's blessings had to come in this life. But Jesus opens us up to a new horizon, one in which we can save ourselves by loving others, in which we have the promise of eternal reward by giving up earthly comforts, in which dying to self, not our bank account, is our security. As a priest, so often I meet people who are suffering, physically, emotionally, financially, in their family relationships, and so often I am amazed and overwhelmed by their faith, their patience, and their trust in the midst of their suffering. I don't say this because I think it would often sound trite and patronizing, but I often want to say it. How close you are 
to the kingdom of God. Peter Kreeft, in his book, Jesus Shock, said this, This is the secret of life. The self lives only by dying, finds its identity and its happiness only by self-forgetting, self-giving, self-sacrifice, and agape love. It's the mystery of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the crucified one. 